I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the 8 Women Podcast, where we bring you stories from women of the diaspora, These are women who have moved countries, come from different cultures, battled the odds, even stormed male bastions to emerge successful and triumphant. Like our interviewee today, Geeta Anand is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who is the first woman of color and indeed the first woman serving as the current dean of the Berkeley School of Journalism. Born in Mumbai or Bombay as it was known then, Geeta began her career at a weekly newspaper in Cape Cod and has climbed many journalistic ladders over the years working at prestigious publications winning awards and even finding time to write a book The Cure It was in fact turned into a movie Extraordinary Measures starring the delectable Harrison Ford She's married to her college sweetheart Gregory Kreischt and they have two college going daughters Let's hear about Geeta's amazing journey and why she believes journalism is a vital public service for a thriving democracy. Hi Geeta and welcome to our podcast. Hi Monica, delighted to be here. From Bombay to Berkeley it's been a journey. What about those early years in India has made you the woman you are today? such a tough question what is it i mean one key formative time was being a competitive athlete i was a competitive swimmer starting when i was 12 and until i was 16 and i had the opportunity to go to an indian government training camp in patiala because india was preparing for the asian games in 1982 and i knew that if i did go to patiala and train i would have a chance of representing india in the asian games so i spent one full year of 10th standard in patiala training with athletes from all over the country for the asian games and the commonwealth games i ended up setting the record in women's 100 and 200 meters breaststroke and representing india in both the asian games and the commonwealth games that experience of seeing that you had an opportunity and training really hard and working for it and it being a long shot and then actually succeeding and making it to the asian games just makes me believe that if you work really hard at anything the impossible is possible it also gave me a chance to meet people from all over india children of farmers who had been swimming in their tank in their village it gave me who was a sheltered city girl at the time just it really expanded my understanding of india and of just people from all over the country and from all different backgrounds that in itself is a whole podcast you're now in a completely different career So what made you change tracks why did you not consider becoming a swimmer I didn't love swimming I did it because I was good at it and it was really exciting to win 
But I learned an important lesson, which is it's not enough to actually win. Enjoying what you do is really important. And I had this conversation with my school principal at the time when I was in 10th grade, telling him I thought I wanted to retire. And that I was much more interested in writing and in my academics and in leadership. And I didn't want to be spending two hours every morning and two hours every evening in the swimming pool. I guess that's the answer to my question is that I didn't love it. I, I loved other things that I couldn't do if I spent so much time as an athlete. And what a fantastic lesson to learn. You must have been, what, 16, 17 to have had that uh, realization at that age. Not everybody who can do that. I studied in Bombay too. And in fact, I remember I was giving my college board exams and the invigilator, you know, who was uh, monitoring the class came and asked me to share my paper with somebody else. I was so distressed after that because I studied very hard for this exam. And it's so easy for you to just share my paper with somebody else. My parents decided that this system doesn't work for you and decided to send me abroad to study. What made you come abroad to study? I don't have as exciting a story in which I discovered something so immoral, but which frequently happens. I had a great experience at 11th and 12th standard because I was able to stay back at my school, which had an 11th and 12th grade in it, which was unusual. My mom's Irish-American and my father's Indian, Punjabi, who fled during the partition and came to Mumbai. I always knew I would apply to college in the U.S. because my mom was from here and knew of how incredible the educational opportunities were. I applied under her influence, though I tried really hard to be the traditional, if there is such a thing, Indian student who focused very much on the sciences. But really, my passion was more in the humanities, and I loved writing. I thought there were just more opportunities for doing that kind of study and work here. And more appreciation for it. Considering your mother is Irish-American, I assume that you must have been coming back and forth and visiting family here while you were in India. So fitting in to America and having a culture shock was not something that was one of your experiences. I didn't expect to have a culture shock because we did visit, but I definitely did have a culture shock because I very much was Indian and ended up straight out of high school in India in New Hampshire, I went to Dartmouth College uh, in Animal House in a school that had a very strong fraternity system and it was just a wild drinking culture. So that was a shock because that was not my high school experience. So it is the ex- high school experience of other people in India. So not to make it a cliche, it was not mine. And also, I am very much an adventurer and I just had no idea what the winters would be like, especially in northern New Hampshire. So that was a shock as well. <laughs> I remember when I first came here to study, I would go around with my tongue out to catch snowflakes because I'd never seen snow before. And I ate all the junk food possible and completely ballooned. (laughs) Was it always journalism for you? And how did you come to specialize in narrative writing and investigative reporting? It wasn't always journalism, but I loved writing essays and creative writing in school. But I also, in college, enjoyed history and understanding the context of things. I also participated in a lot of political activity, campus activism, protesting apartheid and investment in companies doing business in South Africa 
The college song was Men of Dartmouth and there was a lot of rape on campus. I became an activist and I wanted to have a voice and I also loved writing. Journalism seemed like a natural fit and I wrote some stories for the campus newspaper and I did some radio reporting when I was in college. So it just made sense. When I was graduating from college, I just applied for jobs at some small newspapers and got one. It all started from there. And then to your question of how I became focused on narrative writing and investigative reporting, in my early years, I was working on a story that became a huge national story. Um, I was in Vermont working for a tiny local newspaper and a reporter from the Wall Street Journal came up there, heard about the story and started doing amazing front page stories about the topic. And just seeing how he developed these narratives and how he investigated was inspiring to me. And I thought, I want to write like that. I want to do work like that. I love the combination of being revelatory, but also telling stories in a way that moves people and that they can easily absorb. Did you ever consider that you'd return to India? I did. And I spent 10 years in India. I was there from 2008 to 2018. <laughs> I always wanted to. I had an opportunity when my kids were eight and 10 years old, and when my husband, who had been working in banking, lost his job, and when I needed to support my parents, I thought, maybe I can persuade the Wall Street Journal to send me to India as a foreign correspondent. I suggested the idea to them because I thought, wouldn't it be great if our kids could be truly bicultural, go to school in India, learn the language, learn the culture. Wouldn't it be fun to be a foreign correspondent covering the country where you grew up? It seemed like a really special job to be able to do. I wanted a chance to be able to take care of my parents, which is much easier to do in India. They were in the US, but I wanted to bring them back so that they could have a social life again. So I was able to come back. As diaspora, that was juggling the best of both worlds because people who live here always worry, your parents are in India, how will I look after them? Did being a South Asian ever come in the way of you building your career in America? I'm sure it did, but not in ways that blocked me or not in ways that I completely understood at the time. I was always looking at where the avenues lay, where I could make progress, how I could get this particular job. But I think it certainly made it harder to be taken seriously as an investigative reporter, being female and also being South Asian, because investigative reporting is a traditionally all boys club. Doesn't mean you couldn't get there. It just took a little longer and it was a little harder to prove yourself. That's how I look at it now. Any incident or story that you can share about how you managed to break through and do something where it was not traditionally a role that a woman would have played? This is one that um, comes to mind, and it's when I wanted to cover politics at the Boston Globe. I remember one of the editors questioning whether it was possible or how I would be received by politicians in Boston who are from like Irish backgrounds because I needed to be able to befriend them and for them to become my sources and to trust me. And those relationships are important in journalism. And he was from the Midwest and he was like, oh my God, I had such a hard time. How will they receive you? How are you going to do it? How I did it, how I actually got the job was 
how we all advance in life. And it's through relationship, through people believing in you. The bureau chief then at Boston City Hall was a man named Adrian Walker. He happens to be Black and from Miami. I told him I was interested. I had conversations with him and he championed me joining him at City Hall. So it's someone seeing the potential in you and championing you. He continued to be a mentor and a champion, helping me build those relationships with the politicians to enable me to succeed in the job. It was so difficult for you to speak to other Irish Americans because you you technically belonged to their world also in in one sense. I know, but they knew I wasn't really from their world. So I tried to say that, but I couldn't. The moment the next question was, what county are you from in Ireland? I was stumped because I was so far removed from any connection to Ireland. Does it make a difference to have a mentor, especially early on in your career? And for a woman and a South Asian? It definitely makes a difference. And I've had many mentors in my career at every single publication that I worked at. It was often a woman, but not always. It's a transformative experience. It's the difference between succeeding and failing, really. I'm sure you mentor all your students. You have a very vibrant South Asian community at Berkeley. Do you like to give them special focus? I think because I'm South Asian... I've noticed that the people who ask to be my thesis advisees are often women of color, or for sure South Asian women, but it's broader than that. I'm finding that women of color and women from historically marginalized communities are often drawn to my classes and eager for me to mentor them. Certainly mentoring students is just one of the most joyful experiences of my life and anyone's life. And I've just had so many people who've gone above and beyond the call of duty to mentor me that it's sort of the gift that you keep giving to someone else. You're often not able to repay the favor to that person. So you repay it by mentoring someone else. How did you become Dean of Berkeley? Did you have mentors helping you apply for the role? (laughs) Good question. So I did interestingly have a few people who saw the potential in me and suggested it to me before I saw it in myself. One of them was a woman, Lydia Chavez, who was a professor here at Berkeley. She's among the first who suggested it. And at the time, I my answer was, why? It just seemed like a daunting idea. I was coming here to be a professor, to teach and write books. I hadn't come here to try and lead a school or to be in administration. It was sort of my experience here as a professor and as head of a program, which I was asked to do, (laughs) that ended up convincing me that I had the skills to be a dean and that important work could be done as dean. When I was running a program here, I was able to work with a colleague and transform the school in one week into a newsroom covering COVID for the New York Times. The act of being able to do that at a big public university to persuade the faculty to support that was pretty amazing. Being able to do that and being able to have such an important impact on students' lives to enable them to be published, because that's so key to getting jobs. So doing that convinced me that amazing things are possible in public universities. And so being dean and being in a leadership role and being able to make them happen is a very worthwhile job. Then during the racial reckoning here, um, after George Floyd was killed, our students were 
protesting and really upset about just upset about our school not being diverse enough and not supporting people of color enough. I was able to reach out to our larger community and form working groups to respond in a deep and meaningful way to the students' complaints and to the particular issues they wanted us to address. Seeing that I was able to do that and that I enjoyed doing that, and this was a really important moment in the history of journalism and democracy in the world where there were opportunities to really transform our industry and transform our school made me excited about being dean. That made me then raise my hand thought of me for Dean and certainly the mentorship of people like Lydia Chavez played a huge, huge role. But then having experiences that gave me the confidence that I could actually do the job and for the job to actually seem like a meaningful job, more critical. It just seems to have been a natural progression that activists from Dartmouth to getting the community together to fight for a good cause and to make sure you can lead them towards justice. You still teach classes, right? I could still teach classes, but I'm not teaching classes right now. What's the difference between the two? Professor and Dean, do you miss one or the other? Can they work together side by side? (laughs) I could do both together. The job has just gotten larger because the government has cut funding for public universities steadily over time. So professional schools at public universities have to raise a lot of funding for themselves. So my job involves being head of the faculty and helping with curriculum development and admissions, recruiting faculty here from outside, but it also involves fundraising to a huge extent. And all of this makes it a huge job. When I was a professor, I taught investigative reporting. I taught the introduction to reporting class. I taught an India reporting class. A professor's job is a third research, a third teaching, and a third service. Like being involved in curriculum development at the school and those kinds of things. My job is entirely in the service side right now. I'm at the moment not able to spend any time on my own journalism or teaching, though I very much wanted to, but I was persuaded and heeded the words of my mentor, Lydia Chavez, (laughs) who uh, convinced me that until I got the school's foundation stronger and finances stronger, and a sizable amount of fundraising. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And I should not teach. You'd probably miss a lot of interaction with students. 
I still have a lot of interaction with students. I love how much more I had as a professor, but I do have coffee with the dean each week when I meet with students and I do have office hours with students and I even do Monday morning meditation class that I lead. <laughs> so I'm very accessible. I mean, I became dean during the pandemic. So we're talking about accessibility within the context of Zoom. We're at a small school. So there are just about 60 students in each year and it's a two-year program. So there are about 120 students. I don't miss being a professor, but I would love to do it. But this job is so completely engaging that I just don't have a chance to really miss anything else. If it were boring or dull in any way, I would be missing being a professor. Or if being a professor were boring and dull in any way, I would be missing being a journalist. But since each of them <laughs> was equally challenging along the way, in my entire life, I've just never looked back, whether for better or for worse. So... Yeah, makes sense. How was that progression from journalist in America, 10 years in India, then to Berkeley to teach and now Dean? How did you keep pivoting? During the global recession, 2008, our entire family, including my parents, moved to India and my parents lived with us. And I was a foreign correspondent covering India for the Wall Street Journal. And then when the Wall Street Journal wanted me to come back, I changed as a foreign correspondent covering South Asia for the New York Times, because by then my kids were in ninth and 11th grade or 10th and 12th, and I didn't want to move back so quickly. And I was also really unsure of how I would move my parents back to the US. So I wanted to stay in India as long as possible. Then my father got very sick and it was no longer possible for me to travel around South Asia reporting and have other people take them to the doctor, those kinds of things. I ended up leaving the New York Times to take care of my dad. So there was a time at the end of 2017 where I was not working for any publication. I had just decided I would leave the New York Times and I would teach and write books. During that time, a friend of mine, funnily enough, from my school in Bombay Cathedral, <laughs> is a professor at Berkeley in a different school, and started telling me that Berkeley had an India reporting class, and that the Institute for South Asia Studies was asked every year or two to review resumes or recommend an Indian journalist to bring over to teach this class, and would I be interested? She would send my resume in. I sent in my resume and one thing led to another. I was hired to teach the India reporting class as a lecturer at the journalism school. I was never thinking of the West Coast because during my 20 years in the US, I was on the East Coast, mainly in Boston and New York. But because I was headed out to teach this one class, I noticed an advertisement for a permanent professor teaching journalism. I applied for that job and I was hired to teach permanently. <laughs> and then I was on a search committee for another professor of investigative reporting to head investigative reporting here. When we hired him, the then dean asked me if I would become director of that investigative reporting program just on an interim basis to support him. And I really wanted him to succeed. So even though I was loving being a professor, I agreed for the first time to make this next shift, though temporarily, into administration to assist him. That's when we worked together to turn the school into a newsroom covering COVID for the New York Times. That led me to consider the dean job <laughs> or to raise my hand for it. 
it's relationships. If your friend hadn't come over for tea and mentioned it, you may not have been dean of Berkeley School of Journalism. I absolutely would not be here today. I wasn't even thinking of Berkeley. I didn't know it. Talk about your experience in India. What did you see in India as the difference between growing up in India and going back as an adult? I mean, I had read a lot about how much India had changed and how much opportunity there was with technology and outsourcing and all of those things. The India I grew up in, it was hard to buy a pair of jeans. We all died to get some Wrigley's chewing gum. We had a very old 20 or 30 year old ambassador car because no foreign cars were available. Our whole building had to push it to get it started because it was in such bad shape. So India definitely changed hugely when I returned some 25 years later. But in some ways, it hadn't changed because the underlying issues of poverty, of very weak healthcare system, the caste system remaining deeply ingrained, especially in villages, especially in public schools. There's like a blizzard of private schools, but public school education hasn't improved significantly. So I saw definitely a new face of India. Lots of the problems, the deep inequalities remain. Did you feel the attitude was different towards women? I didn't feel it was any better. When I was a teenager who was a swimming champion riding in buses in Delhi, I remember being harassed, pinched, people not letting me off the bus. And as a 50-year-old woman reporting in parts of North India, I was still harassed and had to ask our bureau chief to send a reporter down to assist me in Rajasthan because I didn't think I could finish my story without having a man by my side. So that same aggressiveness towards women has not changed, unfortunately. How did your family adapt to India? Because they'd never lived there. Any things that they did that they enjoyed and that they miss about India now? I had this brilliant idea, two things, that it would be wonderful if the kids went to cathedral school where I went, because I loved it so much. And two, I really wanted them to learn Hindi well. So any people we hired to help us in the house, I decided would be Hindi speakers so that they would be forced to learn Hindi. Now, both of these were good and bad in some ways. My daughters struggled in an Indian school, however Western Cathedral is, because the same group of kids go through the school together the whole time. So my daughters eventually moved to the American school because they were just much more comfortable in that system. So I made it harder for them in the early years with my dream that they would not have to be expats. I wanted them to have that feeling of being really part of a community that I had. And I wasn't able to quite replicate that for them. I was a little delusional about what the experience would be like. And then hiring people who only spoke Hindi. Both my daughters speak very good Hindi as a result of that. And also one daughter spent five years in cathedral and took Sanskrit and Hindi. They both think of themselves as Indian, which is really wonderful for me and which seemed like a tall order when we arrived in India. They were shouting, we're American and 
why should we learn Hindi? But it was very hard for our driver and people like that to only speak Hindi because I was traveling around doing my journalism job. I was getting calls from the, my daughter, my husband saying, could you please tell so-and-so that I want tea or no one could communicate with each other. And I was the only person who spoke the language. <laughs> So that was chaos. <laughs> That's so funny. What did your husband do? My husband started a microbrewery in Mumbai. It was Mumbai's first microbrewery and it was called the Barking Deer. So he was on his own journey because it's very hard to start a business anyway. He's Polish, German, American and has grown up in the US his whole life. So as a foreigner trying to start a business is very tough. Luckily, he had a lot of my friends and relatives assisting him. But he did eventually open the parking there in Lower Parel. And it was a thriving, exciting business for a few years. He had his own India journey. <laughs> you must have lived in a building. So it was different from living in a house in America. And then but we were in New York City, in Manhattan, in Brooklyn. So it was a similar experience. If we had left the suburb here, it would have been different. They were very much mired in city life, in buildings. And we continued our crazy trajectory of moving buildings quite a lot. The last few years have been polarizing the U.S., especially for your profession. What's your vision for the future of journalism? I've been focused very much on trying to change who the storytellers are and give first-generation students, the children of immigrants, people from historically marginalized groups, the chance to become journalists. We have such important positions of power and influence, but the economics of journalism don't work for lower-income people. They don't have the social network and those connections to get those first few jobs. I would love our journalism school to be a place that takes away the economic barriers that prevent people who are first generation and not from empowered families, removes those obstacles so they can become journalists, even consider going to journalism school. My big idea is to raise an endowment to make our journalism school tuition free. I feel journalism is an essential public service in a democracy. It's worth the investment if we don't invest in journalism education, we won't have good journalists holding government and powerful people to account and identifying and recognizing the important stories of our time. For example, recognizing that people of color are subjected to so much more police violence. You know, people who are from those communities would have recognized if they were empowered in journalism and more of them were leaders, they would have told more of those stories sooner that would have led to this country taking action far, far sooner to address this horrible problem. There have been some amazing books written by Fragility and Cast and the one by Ibram Kendi. Yeah, one of my favorites is The New Jim Crow. I don't know if you've read that. It's by Michelle Alexander, I think. But yes, there's so many good books that we're all reading now and more coming up that are eye-opening. Especially understanding slavery much better and understanding critical race theory. Are you going to write any of these kind of books? You've written one. How did that book come about? And like, do, are there any more books in your future? <laughs> I was very much thinking I would be writing those kinds of books 
now, but it seems life has led me in a different direction, at least for now. I wrote The Cure when I was at the Wall Street Journal covering the biotech beat. And I met a father who started a biotech company to develop a medicine to try to save his two kids who were dying of a rare genetic disease. I was just really inspired by the story of how he was trying to save his family and also the medical scientific journey of trying to find a cure for this disease and also the business challenge of trying to convince venture capitalists to fund this and how he did it. And I was covering a lot of corruption, was part of a team that had just won a Pulitzer Prize for reporting on corporate corruption, but I didn't want to write about how low people can fall. I wanted to write about how high people can rise and the inspiring great things they can do. I also love the fact that this family and this father were really honest about themselves and the journey. And I thought that I would be able to write like a really true to life revelatory story about this family's journey and about the biotech industry. That's why I wrote it. Did you ever meet Harrison Ford? I did. I did. The producer very generously invited the family the book was about and also my family to the set to meet all the actors and the people involved in the film. It was filmed in Portland, Oregon. And Harrison Ford was there. And Brendan Fraser was there. I hadn't realized what thoughtful, kind, smart people they would be. My friend who edited my book, when you talk about repaying gifts people give to you, this friend of mine, just out of the kindness of her heart, edited my book, but she was dying of cancer at the time. She couldn't come to the set and so I asked Harrison Ford when I met him if he would call Sarah and have a chat with her. And I also asked Brendan Fraser when I met him if he would call Sarah and have a chat with her. And each one just had me hand them my phone and phoned her up and had a half an hour conversation with her while I stood there listening. I'm getting goosebumps. That is such an amazing story. And the fact that they would take the time to call Sarah. And then as I overheard their conversation, I was so surprised by how she asked them all of these really good questions. Questions I hadn't thought of asking because I thought they wouldn't have anything particularly interesting to say. And surprise, surprise. You should never stereotype people. Harrison Ford was obsessed with the scientific accuracy of the story. Brendan Fraser wanted to do the film because he himself struggled with a child with a, a serious disability or illness. And so this story resonated with him. You've won many awards. You've been the dean of the Berkeley School of Journalism. You won a Pulitzer Prize. You've had a book that's been turned into a movie. Which of all these means the most to you and why? <laughs> oh, gosh, I don't know. I really live very much in the present. I guess I would just say that in many ways, you know, being dean of the Berkeley School of Journalism seems like the biggest, most meaningful challenge of my life because I have the possibility and the opportunity to impact not just the students here now, but future generations of students and our entire industry. 
from where I sit, what I'm doing right now seems like the most important and meaningful thing of my life. I think that's such a powerful answer. I couldn't have said it better. spouse, colleagues, kids, parents, students, had to name a unique character trait about you, what would it be? Audacious. Why do you say that? Bold, fearless. It's not to say I don't have fears, but I'm not afraid of failing. So for example, a colleague of mine said to me early on, do you really think you should have this vision of raising a hundred million dollars to make the journalism school tuition free. What if you don't make it? What will your legacy be? Your legacy would be fantastic even if you didn't have this. And my answer was that I'm not afraid of failing. I want to try. I want to have big goals and big ambitions for the school because I think if you're afraid of failing, you won't think big. So just thinking big ideas and being willing to make a leap when you don't know where it's going to lead. I think I did the same thing going to India. I was at the height of my career here working for my favorite editor at the Wall Street Journal and deciding to move back to India was a leap, but I thought it was worth it for my family, for my kids, for my parents. Leaving journalism when my dad was ill, I worked continuously for 27 years, but deciding that I'm going to quit and take care of him and I'm sure I will find something else meaningful to do work-wise was a leap. And my husband was really not supportive of this idea and terrified. (laughs) But it all worked out. (laughs) Guess so. Does Gita Anand ever switch off? What do you do to relax? I do switch off and plan to switch off more. I love to read. I'm very social and I love spending time with friends. My favorite thing to do would be just going out to dinner with one or two or three really close friends. I'm really proactive about handling stress. I did the Vipassana 10-day silent meditation and I'm a big practitioner of yoga and meditation. do yoga three times a week. I swim because that's my best form of exercise. But I'm not a big movie goer or hiker or concert watcher. (laughs) My things are all sort of more quiet. My my hobbies are more friend-oriented. What genre of books do you enjoy reading? Oh, all kinds. You know, uh, but I've been reading some of the same ones you talked about. Sometimes they're topical when something huge is happening in the world. But I also love fiction. One of my favorite books is by an Indian writer who's actually here on campus, Vikram Chandra. I think he must have been quite astonished to hear me go on and on and on about his book, Sacred Games, which I thought was phenomenal. I have a rapid fire round for you. Are you ready? Please rapid fire and I'll attempt to answer. Bombay or Berkeley? I love both. Writing books or feature pieces? Books. Bollywood or Hollywood? Hollywood. What's your favorite book? Sacred Games. Who's your favorite journalist? Catherine Boo. Suits or saris? Neither, but I guess suits. (laughs) What do you like to wear? I like to wear more casual clothes, jeans and kurtas. 
Wall Street Journal or New York Times? Wall Street Journal. Favorite beverage? Wine. White or red? Red. One thing you can't do without? Coffee. One piece of advice to future journalists? Be compassionate. Geeta, thank you so much for your time today. It was a delight speaking with you. For all our listeners, you can catch this episode on our social media handles at Eight Women Global on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Thanks, Monica.